Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is Sydney Bowie. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systemically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. We have the pleasure of talking to Sally Hahn, a licensed and master social worker and the manager of community engagement at Restore NYC, an anti-trafficking nonprofit. Sally has been working with Restore NYC for a while now, and she has been instrumental in the organization's efforts to make freedom real for survivors of trafficking in the United States. Her journey started as a case manager, where she worked tirelessly to help survivors of trafficking. She then moved up the ranks and became the manager of the case management program at Restore, and now she oversees volunteers, partners, and external training for Restore. Through her work, Sally moves the community to be a champion for survivors of trafficking, and her efforts are a true testament to the differences one person can make. She also plays a crucial role in educating partners and the public on what trafficking is and what trauma-informed best practices are. We are honored to have Sally on our show today and look forward to learning more about her inspiring journey and the work she is doing at Restore NYC. Welcome, Sally. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. So uh, just to start, could you tell us a little bit about your cultural upbringing and how you grew up? Yes, uh, I am a Christian and Korean-American. I was born in LA and raised in North Carolina. I'm from an immigrant family, and I had the privilege of growing up in America thanks to my parents. Um, my father is the senior pastor of a Korean American church in North Carolina, so I grew up with the church being my second physical home until I accepted Jesus Christ as my savior, and now heaven's become my first home. Uh, I very much embody both the Korean and American cultures. Uh, but when growing up, I sometimes felt like my identity was not fully in either culture. Uh, now I'm fully okay and I accept that I'm a mix. I'm a good mix of both cultures. And, and in that way, that's like my own, um, my own culture. <laughs> so um, to where you are today, how did you end up working in the area of human trafficking? Was that always a passion of yours? Yes. Um, actually, I the way that I ended up working in the anti-human trafficking field is really God's grace and sovereignty. I didn't really know much or anything really about it um, previously. Uh, after undergrad, I lived in Cambodia for one year um, for missions. I taught at a Christian international school in Chianukville, Cambodia. And there I witnessed a situation where a mom of one of our Sunday school children uh, tried to sell her to one of our Sunday school teachers for $200 for gambling money. Uh, it was really heartbreaking when thinking about what the child must have been going through, but also to see the mom even like get to that kind of situation. So this situation and also seeing a lot of great nonprofit organizations in Cambodia led me to apply to the School of Social Work at 
Columbia University for my master's. And so for our program, we were placed in internships and God matched me with Restore NYC, uh, which happened to be an anti-trafficking organization. So it, I think it was truly God-ordained. God and that's how I gratefully was able to get into the anti-trafficking field professionally. And um, I've been there since. That's a that's such an interesting and amazing journey from that time in Cambodia to where you are today. Yeah, I think recognizing that uh, that portion of it being God's grace is, is amazing too. Um, it's kind of thing how I how I ended up in city relations. Very very same. It was just wow. you put things in place uh, yeah. for me to be here. Um, so man, you've seen this issue not just uh, obviously in the states, right? But your first time kind of encountering it uh, in Cambodia. When you think about here, right, specifically with us in in New York, um, how prevalent is human trafficking uh, in NYC? Yes. Human trafficking is very prevalent in our own city. 10,000 people are estimated to being trafficked in any given day, in every borough, and in every neighborhood. And so, um, and this affects both United States citizens and immigrants. One of the reasons we wanted to have you here is to think about the intersection of human trafficking, human trafficking and homelessness. I myself have interest in knowing more about both of those things, but I have it has not occurred to me to think about the intersectionality of the two. So can you talk about what that link could be and any stories that you would have about um, people, clients that you have that may have experienced homelessness? I love this question because I have the opportunity to break down the misconception that systemic injustices like human trafficking and homelessness are separate from each other that human trafficking is in one bucket of systemic injustice and homelessness is in, is in another. When in reality, there is, like you said, an intersection of all these systemic injustices. So I love the definition of intersectionality, that it is the interconnected nature of social categorization, such as homelessness, race, class, gender, human trafficking, as they apply to any person or group. So regarding this creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. So specifically, what we see at Restore is that 64% of survivors reported being homeless or experiencing unstable housing when they were recruited into a human trafficking situation. And during the pandemic, we saw a pattern of survivors feeling like they have no choice but to go back to their traffickers when they lost their jobs and couldn't afford to maybe live independently as they were. And their traffickers, knowing that the survivors was probably going through a hard time like most of the world was during the pandemic, would reach out and say, hey, I have a place where you can live. You can come back to me and I'll help you. And if the choices between living on the streets or going to a shelter where the survivor could feel even more unsafe, uh, they may feel like they have no other choice but to go back to their trafficker. And so we see this intersection between homelessness and trafficking. It's just, it's like another vulnerability um, that traffickers target. That's so interesting to think about homelessness being a cause of being vulnerable to human trafficking because people in a vulnerable situation like that um, can be much more open to someone saying that they will help them and to choose that as one of the least terrible, supposedly in the moment of some terrible options. It's really interesting. 
Yeah, I think it, it highlights the need for there to be legitimate solutions, right, to mm -hmm. someone who's like living on the street, right? How important is it that there are things that are in place and working effectively? Uh, because if not, right, this could be the route that someone ends up going where they feel like they don't have any other kind of choice but to, you know. So again, this, this, again, that intersected this, this multi, multiple ways that homelessness can impact someone, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just, okay, you're just on the street or multiple ways, right? Why is this person in this situation? Well, feeling like they didn't have another way out, feeling like they didn't have other options um, and being able to say, okay, what's a holistic approach look like yeah. to address, kind of addressing all of this? What is something or a few things that you think that uh, people might not understand about human trafficking and its prevalence in NYC? And I know for me, like I think about the, like you say human trafficking and my mindset usually directly goes to sex trafficking, right? But mm -hmm. that's not the only kind of form of, of human trafficking that's happening. So so what are some things you think people might not uh, be aware of when it comes to human trafficking? Absolutely. Um, I love the debunking of um, its um, trafficking. And I could go on a lot about, you know, several, but uh, I'll kind of focus on two actual big misconceptions um, that people have. First is that many people think the problem of human trafficking is happening over there, like in other countries. Uh, but actually, human trafficking affects 403,000 people living here in the United States. So this is very much a here problem as it is an over there problem. And as we talked about earlier, specifically in New York City, 10,000 people are being trafficked every single day. And the second misconception is that people think trafficking looks like the movie Taken, where it's by force, right? Someone is kidnapped. The victims are usually young white girls. Um, and although these kinds of situations can happen. This is not the reality of trafficking for the survivors that we serve here in New York City. Trafficking is, by definition of the U.S. law, the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel a person into commercial sex or labor against his or her will. And what we see when working with survivors is that the use of fraud and coercion is more commonly used. Um, so a victim of sex trafficking in an illicit massage parlor can technically come and go uh, and so people will say, how can that person be a victim if she's allowed to come out of the massage parlor like that? Uh, but this is what generally trafficking looks like here. The use of coercion and fraud is what keeps a victim in their trafficking situation more than force. And when we look at the demographics of the survivors we serve, the average age is 37 years old, with most survivors being in the 24 to 49 year old range. Again, uh, not just young girls. Um, and the Latinx population makes up 49% of the survivors that we serve, and African-American or Black survivors make up 21%, while Caucasian or white survivors make up only 9%. So again, uh, when you look on Google and you look up human trafficking, again, it's like a lot of young white girls, but uh, women of color are actually the most vulnerable to trafficking. And like you said, Sydney, it not just sex trafficking, but labor trafficking. So there are a lot of uh, workers in the domestic industry, right? Hospitality industry that are also being trafficked. So I think a lot of people do focus a lot on the sex trafficking, but labor trafficking uh, survivors, uh, there are quite many of them as well. At City Relief, we aren't the only ones in the business of helping people. This podcast is brought to you by our longtime supporters and friends at Buttafuoco and Associates. They are dedicated to helping people rebuild their lives after a serious injury. They are a national injury law firm 
that has won over 500 million in verdicts and settlements for people struggling to overcome medical malpractice, construction accidents, auto accidents, injuries, wrongful death, and workers' compensation. Their team of personal injury attorneys has a genuine passion for seeking justice, and they understand the hardships that come with debilitating injuries that change the course of someone's life. If you or a loved one has experienced a serious injury, our friends at Buttafuoco and Associates will take care of you. Contact them at 1-800-NOWHURT.COM or 1-800-669-4878. Those two things to debunk are so, so critical. I agree, especially when um, it's easier to think of this as a faraway problem when you think it's an idea of being kidnapped and taken out of the United States and uh, terrifying, but very unlikely. So I really love that you Set, you gave us the number and then you said in every borough, in every neighborhood. That's really sobering because then you look around your neighborhood going, how is this happening and, and that kind of thing. And I think it's also really important that the fraud and the coercion is emphasized, right? Because there are people in such desperate, desperate situations are being coerced or being promised one thing and not the other. They truly don't feel like they have an option. And that's a really, that's a really uh, very real thing. And I think that um, as a woman, I can understand how you could get to that place. So jump to, um, we have someone who's a survivor of human trafficking. What are their options? Do they try to go to a shelter or, or go someplace else? Like, wh what? Where do you find um, uh, your clients tend to go when they become survivors? So we get connected with survivors in many different ways uh, through other service provider organizations, law enforcement. Um, it could be self-referral, so they uh, look for our website or uh, they may call the National Human Trafficking Hotline and then they get referred to us. Um, we have a housing program that seeks to help survivors by providing emergency, transitional, supportive and independent housing. So for survivors who are exiting their trafficking situation, we provide crisis intervention where we find emergency housing for them, usually safe hotels, thanks to partners like Polaris and other hotel partners, uh, where they can stay for a few nights until we can get them connected to our long-term services like case management. It's in case management where they work together on long-term stable housing. Uh, Restore has also its own confidential transitional home where survivors can reside for 12 to 18 months together in a safe community with other survivors as they work on their trauma and recovery. And also we help, help survivors with supportive housing, so applying for housing vouchers in the city. We also have a housing specialist who builds relationships with landlords to help survivors get affordable apartments uh, with low barriers. Uh, so this is how we um, try to help survivors when they come to us uh, with uh, stable housing. That is, uh, that's amazing. That is beautiful work you guys are doing. I, uh, it is, this is a very uh, personal kind of question for me, but like in the work that I do, right? Like I'm, I'm an outreach leader, I'm out on the streets working with people who are coming up, right? What, what do I need to be looking for, right? To be aware of, you know, when I'm connecting with someone, when I'm having conversations with someone, when I'm kind of finding out a little bit about what they're going through, you know, what are kind of the signs that I should be looking for to say, okay, this person might be in a, in a, in a trafficking, you know, situation. Mm, yes. Yeah. 
it's difficult to say on the first glance, but uh, some some things could be that perhaps if the person feels when you have a conversation with them, if you get a chance to have a conversation with them and you hear that, uh, you know, you hear a lot of words like I don't have a choice or I feel like I can't do this. There's a lot of choice and, and like power that's like taken away from them, right? Uh, perhaps they also mention um, that someone is helping them um, and it sounds very too good to be true kind of thing where it's like they stay for free and, you know, all they have to do is just uh, do this one thing or another. So um, it's like just do your conversations when you're hearing uh, them. If you hear any, uh, again, perhaps manipulation um, that's happening to them, they are in a very vulnerable state that uh, traffickers could kind of uh, target. So uh, just also just kind of hearing them out when you're when you're talking with them. I think what's also something to be mindful of is that when we're doing this work, it can be very easy to be suspicious of everyone and like uh, start like, are you a trafficker? Are you a trafficker? Uh, so something, it's like a good balance. I think it's, um, if if you're ever not sure, uh, what you can do is uh, give them, like, our contact information and just, like, have them reach out. Or perhaps you can give us a call and then, you know, tell us what you think. Um, it also could be perhaps, like, going to uh, law enforcement and just uh, seeing if, if you do see happen to see something. It is good to be aware and at the same time also be mindful that not being kind of suspicious of everyone, if that makes sense. So it's a good balance <laughs> and it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And that's helpful. So we were mentioning earlier that traffic traffickers can use the uh, fear of homelessness or the threat of homelessness as a part of coercion. So at Restore, um, do you, and if so, how do you educate people on um, how to avoid being manipulated by coercion? When we work with survivors, we educate them on what trafficking looks like and what traffickers can do to manipulate people. Uh, we also educate on housing resources that are available so that they can rely on those uh, because we know that traffickers will target uh, like vulnerabilities like homelessness. So we want to help survivors not be in those vulnerable states. Also, one of our program values is safety not just physical safety, but emotional safety. So we talk about what safety looks like to that person and what do unsafe people look like and what makes situations feel unsafe. So in this way, we try to educate people on the realities of trafficking and the coercion that could happen. And really giving people tools to, mm -hmm. to yeah. understand. It sounds like trauma-informed care, which is... Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, so yeah. Important. And... Uh, Yes, um, and we uh, never want to make the decision for the survivor. We try to just lay out everything before them and um, just really inform them of every single option out there, every even education. We inform them, um, and and we believe that they are the expert of their lives, and so uh, we want to empower them to make the decision. And even if that decision is perhaps not the decision that we would make, uh, we 
we support them and we don't leave them. You know, we are still here for you. And so uh, through it all, we want to empower the client. Um, oh, it's survivors that we serve. We call them clients. And so we, we empower them. We believe in self-determination and choice. Yeah, I think that point you make is is so important uh, about like, you don't you lay out kind of what the options are. Mm-hmm. Right. But you're not forcing anyone to do anything. Right. Like, again, like you said, like really allowing people to kind of be the experts in their own in their own lives. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, something that's big for City Relief is treating everybody with dignity and respect mm-hmm. and kind of baking into so much of what we do, the 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 opportunity for choice, because so often people are not having it. Right. And I think of someone who's going through if they are experiencing you know trafficking. Right. Mm-hmm. How re-triggering it can be. Right. To have someone take yeah. choice away from you again right and it's just like okay it's just kind of taking you back to the situation you're in so Absolutely. having that option is uh the option and not like do this or we're kind of out of here but here's what you can do and and you know you can choose what you like to choose and we're here for you you know Absolutely. Way, that's beautiful yeah um, so so good <laughs> so one of the things that we have been experiencing that's really right is a huge uptick obviously in um in serving the migrant community that's been coming mm-hmm. uh, into the into the city. Uh, I think recent figures are saying there's uh, up close to twenty thousand uh, since mm-hmm. last summer of families that are coming in from the southern border. Um, do you are at Restore? Have you been coming into contact with any of these families that are in need? And and what's that? What's that kind of been like for you guys? Yes, actually, we've been getting this question a lot since um, the waves. Um, and uh, the, the short answer is no, not yet. Um, I think the not yet is pretty big uh, because if a lot of migrant families are, you know, they are like cramped together in one location or um, I just I also heard that they're like the suicide rate is also growing up. So um, in the midst of all of that, if someone targets a vulnerability and then try to manipulate someone, sadly, they could be in a situation where they uh, fall into trafficking. But uh, we may not see that yet until, because uh, we are an aftercare service, so we won't be able to work with anyone until they are ready to leave or they are about to leave their situation. And um, a lot of that is helped through like law enforcement. If they're, for example, if there's like a, like Homeland Security goes in or FBI and like they, um, they help uh, victims come out. Um, so through those uh, ways that we can also uh, finally be able to meet the survivors and help them. That's why I kind of say uh, we don't we haven't met anyone yet through our services, uh, but uh, I'm very much afraid that it could happen later on when we see um, yeah, it happening um, virtually not right now. And uh, we we would love to, I think, uh, be more on the preventative side as well. But until then. City Relief is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you, who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give or volunteer and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. Um, Yeah, and you mentioned being an aftercare provider. So can you um, help us understand what that means exactly? 
the starting point kind of like when the person is about to leave their situation, uh, we will like help them um, uh, like with emergency housing. We have great on-call advocates. And so it's like kind of our um, after hours team uh, when emergencies do come in. And uh, again, most of these are if like a, a, an FBI raid is about to happen and they know they've seen that they've been monitoring this uh, brothel or um this massage parlor and uh, they suspect that there is trafficking going on. And so they're letting us know that they're about to go do the raid. And then if there are victims that they will call us. And so we can help them uh, with emergency housing for the night and help them get connected to us, like do identification for trafficking. So we, uh, starting from that point on, uh, we help a survivor on their recovery, uh, on their journey uh, recovery and flourishing. Uh, so that's very much uh, what we do in our aftercare service. So uh, we don't have as much presence in the preventative side uh, just yet. So that's what we mean by aftercare. Just following up, you're saying you don't have as much on the preventative side just yet. Is that a direction that you're looking to go to be more on the preventative side? And what, what would that look like? Uh, I think so. We uh, we have done a few outreaches for prevention um, where we work together with NYPD Vice, um, the, the team, the task force that's uh, for anti-trafficking. And so uh, we have gone with them, just them in their you know normal clothes. Um, and uh, a few of our staff uh, specifically going to massage parlors and we have staff who speak their language like Mandarin, Korean and going in and uh, just kind of educating like, hey, this is who we are. You know, we're not with the police now. <laughs> also reassuring like, um, what this is, you know, what we do. And so if you feel like you are ever, you know, kind of forced or compelled or coerced to do something that you don't want to do, uh, you know, you can always give us a call. And so we've done a few outreaches like that before, uh, before the pandemic. And also we have other programs where we partner with other organizations and kind of send out like a mass text message to all the numbers that are kind of listed on uh, websites that are used for escorting, et cetera. Um, and just sending a, a message, like we were kind of vague, but enough where like, hey, this is who we are. If you ever need help, you can call us. Uh, so these are kinds of the ways that we have done preventative work. Um, and we are working on kind of uh, expanding that as we grow bigger as an organization. So we are always trying to be innovative. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, but you, and you talked about, we were talking about the housing. You mentioned before the different kinds of housing that you um, can connect your clients to. Uh, we live in New York City which is a very difficult place um, to afford housing. So how hard is that for you guys to find to secure housing that we, you can use um, to benefit your clients? Oh, yes. Uh, housing is super difficult. <laughs> a little bit like uh, the topic of intersectionality that we talked about. So survivors of human, tra of human trafficking, they are experiencing other systemic injustices all at the same time, like lack of documentation status, racism, poverty. Uh, so all of these compound together in making it difficult to find housing. Um, in addition, there aren't as many shelters, housing options for that are designated specifically for survivors of trafficking. 
there are several for survivors of domestic violence. Um, so oftentimes survivors of human trafficking are kind of lumped under like domestic violence. Um, and although there are similarities between the two, there are also differences which require different approaches, but there aren't just as many uh, specific options for survivors of trafficking. Uh, but the biggest thing that makes it difficult, I believe, is the trauma that comes from trafficking. So there's a huge layer of this barrier um, in finding housing for survivors uh, because of the trauma that comes with trafficking. Yeah, and uh, I know that your work is, as we said, trauma-informed care and helping people to start healing from that trauma. But it must be something that is long-lasting in their lives, that that trauma doesn't just Mm. go away. Yeah. And for example, if a survivor has to explain why she doesn't have documentation to a landlord or why she has a terrible credit score, all because her trafficker took away their documentation or ran a credit card in their name or like opened a credit card in their name and left them on huge amounts of credit debt and a bad score, it makes it really difficult for survivors to get housing. But also they have to they would have to explain why this happened. So then they are revealing that they are a survivor of trafficking. And I've seen this often in the service provider field. And we also are so mindful of this. And we try to we try to make sure that this isn't a barrier for them, right? But so many times survivors have to explain their story over and over again. To every service provider they go to, they have to explain it again and again. And it's just re-traumatizing and there's also a lot of stigma and uh, depending on the culture or not, uh, there's a lot of shame that could be felt. So uh, this trauma is, is huge. And it also affects the person neurologically. So for example, memory, long-term planning is affected by trauma. And this could make it difficult for a person when you know seeking long-term housing, seeking stability, when they're planning with their taste manager to go look at a place or fill out this application something is they have to has to be done by themselves um but because of trauma it can really affect them and um physically and neurologically and so uh, just trauma just kind of plays into like all aspects of their life you mentioned uh one of the barriers being uh that people have gone through who are survivors of trafficking are kind of lumped in with survivors of domestic abuse and that there's some similarities, but there are also differences in how you know clients would need to be treated and cared for. Could you speak to what some of those differences would need to be or should be? Like we said before, uh, survivors of trafficking uh, could be sex trafficking, but also labor trafficking. And domestic violence, although a lot of survivors may know their traffickers beforehand, so right, uh, there's IPV uh, and uh, domestic violence. So from people that you know, your family members, uh, loved ones, uh, but there are also trafficking happens in the workplace a lot that we've seen. So it's from your boss, right? Your coworker, um, someone that you kind of just met and who hired you. Uh, it could be um, the family that you are nannying for. So uh, it doesn't really fall under domestic violence. Uh, so they're like neither this, right? Not, not really domestic violence, but also there's not as many options out there for survivors of trafficking that don't fall under this domestic violence or like no overlaps with IPV, et cetera. So um, those are like some of the differences. Um, 
between domestic violence and uh, human trafficking overall. Yeah, and we find that um, in the in the general population, such as it is of men and women experiencing homelessness, that as you said before, um, the shelters can be um, very traumatizing in of themselves. Whether they're very, they're dangerous, um, there can be theft or sexual assault, um, and so there that the choice to sleep outside can feel safer than going to a shelter. And then you add on these layers for survivors of human trafficking. So when you hear the name of our podcast, nobody chooses homelessness. How does that phrase resonate with what you do? For me, it was certainly impactful upon hearing it. Uh, When I heard it, I immediately thought, yeah, nobody chooses that. Uh, Just like nobody chooses to be a victim of human trafficking. Uh, I think it's very powerful, uh, and I hope it shifts our society's perspective that it's not the person's fault for becoming homeless or for a person to fall into trafficking situation. And so it really does shift the perspective for me, uh, the nobody chooses homelessness phrase. Yeah, and I appreciate the addition, nobody chooses human trafficking either. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what uh, what I was thinking, like how, how directly it is connected to that, right? That regardless mm-hmm. of what someone's again if someone's in a situation where there's fraud coercion whatever it is or feeling like there's no other option this is not the thing that they would have chosen for themselves right when they find themselves in these in these positions so having that in mind right what is uh one thing you know we have different people from different backgrounds and different scenarios listening uh today right what is one thing that just the everyday person listening uh to this podcast can do to impact ending homelessness um and i'll also add you know ending you know, traffic? I think acknowledging the person, like making eye contact with them. Uh, very much uh, in New York, we uh, just, we're so busy. Everyone is walking fast. Uh, everyone has someplace to be. Um, but when someone is, someone standing there or someone's asking you for something, even if you don't have anything, I think just acknowledging the person and saying, hey, I'm so sorry, I don't have anything on me. Um, perhaps you could, um, you know, cure what they need. And if it's just food, uh, perhaps like buying food with them or, you know, asking them what their name is. And so just really acknowledging them as a person and uh, and also at the same time having good judgment, but don't be judgmental, right? And me personally, um, you know, if they ask for a dollar, um, I'm, I'm going to give that dollar. Um, I try to, you know, uh, have something on me at all times to get them and also not questioning where they're going to use it or anything like that, not having that judgment. Uh, because we do that too at Restore where we have cash assistance. Um, and there could be a lot of stigma around it or stereotype where like oh you know what if they use it somewhere else or they're not using it well but uh that's not up to us like it's the person knows what they need they know what they need it for and so we assist them with that and i think the same goes for like everyone i'm not gonna you know nitpick about like hey where is this going or um but just like helping out in the moment and um but really just not treating them as invisible um i think they already may feel like they're this invisible community in New York, but just really acknowledging them as a person and I see you uh, and I want to know your name. And I think this really does like, it reminds us like we are seen and known by God and God knows us. And uh, there's something so great about being seen and 
and being heard and being known. And so uh, I think that's like one thing that we each can do and something that I'm also always working on as well, not just swinging like whew, wishing by someone, but uh, seeing them, looking at them. And uh, oh, and one last is uh, maybe not have a savior complex at the same time, right? Uh, so it's it's not up to me to like shoulder their burdens and like, you know, be responsible for their life. But um, someone in your community, perhaps someone's working on this issue, like City Relief. And so they're a trained professional. So, you know, go to them. Um, if you do see someone regularly in your community, try to connect them if they want that. Yeah, we started talking about the intersectionality of homelessness and trafficking. It sounds like there's a huge intersectionality uh, between City Relief and Restore and uh, promoting dignity, just human dignity uh, with men and women experiencing these terrible things. So, Absolutely. It's been so wonderful to talk to you, Sally. It's really been delightful. And I feel like I've learned, um, I've learned a lot from talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me here and uh, just allowing me to uh, really dwell on this question on homelessness and human trafficking together. Hey, you. Yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry. We are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.